I believe that I have uh, a word for you this morning. I've prayed and I believe that, that God wants to speak to each and every one of us this morning. I'm trying something new. We got an earpiece that I'm trying this morning, so uh, if it flies off or something because you can't turn very well, uh, just forgive me. I'll put it back on and then you can hear me again. Um, but an atheist is someone that denies the existence of God. Um, when I was living in San Antonio, I led a campus outreach to the University of Texas at San Antonio, and we had a campus club there. And while I was the, the, the campus club pastor, uh, there was a group of atheists that started a group called the Atheist Agenda. And they had an agenda for sure, and their agenda was to mock Christians and to mock Christianity. And I remember one time where they did something so demeaning and so terrible towards Christianity that it made me sick to my stomach. What they did was they put up posters all over the school, they handed out flyers all over the school, and they created an event. And what they did was they set up a table out in, in, the, in a very public part of the, the, the campus, and w- what they said was, if you turn in your Bibles to our table, we'll give you a porn magazine. And when I, this is a true story, when I heard about it, I was infuriated. I mean, it's like, okay, if you want to get together uh, and, and, and have a club for atheists and talk about whatever atheists talk about, that's fine. But this is crossing the line, and this is just pure evil. And so what we did was, on the day that they were doing this, we set up a table right next to their table, and we gave out uh, sermon CDs of our pastor that preached on the negative effects of pornography, and we gave out stats on, on uh, porn addicts. And so right as they were, uh, people were handing Bibles and getting porn magazines, we were handing out CDs and stats and praying over those people and all that. Let's just say they didn't like us very much, but we didn't like what they were doing either. If you're in church this morning, you're probably not an atheist of this kind, but you might be another kind of atheist. You might be a Christian atheist. You might be a Christian atheist. Now, doesn't Christian atheist seem like an oxymoron? Well, yes, it does, but there are a lot of them out there. There's a lot of them maybe sitting in this room. I used to be one of them. Let me define for you what a Christian atheist is is. And there's also notes on the back of your bulletin as well so that you can follow along. Christian atheists are people that believe in God but live as if he doesn't exist. Let me say that again. Christian atheists are people that believe in God. They go to church, but they live their lives as if God doesn't exist. And before I go on in this message, I do need to say that I got the title and the concept of this message from a book that I'm reading called The Christian Atheist by Craig Groeschel. And I do need to give credit to that. Listen to what Jesus said while addressing the Pharisees. And this scripture will be up on the screen for you. It's found in Matthew chapter 15. And I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 14. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You hypocrites. Look at your neighbor and say, you hypocrites. Then say, just kidding. Maybe. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts 
are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? How many of you know Jesus wasn't too concerned with offending people? Then the, uh, Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. You see, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they were prime examples of Christian atheists. They talked a good talk. They sounded religious. They prayed fancy prayers. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They could, uh, they could quote the entire Pentateuch. They, they knew inside and out the Mosaic law. But it was just rules and regulations. It was just head knowledge. It wasn't in their heart. But they started doing what many well-meaning Christian people do. And Jesus called them out on it. He said, you are teaching man-made ideas as commands from God. You're taking things that that man made up. You're taking preferences that, that were created in the mind and the heart of man. And you're teaching them as commands straight from God. You're taking what was written in this book, you're making your own interpretation out of it and then you're forcing the people to follow those rules. I served under a pastor several years ago that uh, he didn't like pork. He thought it was unhealthy, which is true, but he, he didn't like pork and he didn't eat it. But the thing is, is that he expected his staff not to eat pork either. And so when we were in his presence... We were not allowed to eat pork or he would give us judgmental looks and, and he would dice us up with his eyes. And so what, what, what happened is whenever we were with him and we were eating with him, we wouldn't eat pork. And then what started to happen when he wasn't with us and we were at Subway and somebody with us decided to have a ham sandwich, we would start to judge them and tell them they were going to hell for eating pork. You see, what was happening is what, was, what started out as a man's preference, he didn't want pork, started to become God's law in our lives. And we all do this. If someone that claims to be a Christian wears a short skirt, we automatically doubt their salvation, don't we? You know, we quote that, that scripture that says it is by knee-length skirts that we are saved. You know, we just judge them and talk, you know, think all these bad thoughts about them in our mind. If someone listens to a certain type of music, we start to question their relationship with Jesus. I don't know if you've done that, but I've done it. Christian atheists are those that believe in God, but live as though he doesn't exist. People that honor Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And my first point is this. You might be a Christian atheist if you try and earn your way into a right relationship with God. If you try to earn your way into a right relationship with God. And I'm guilty of doing this. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 say this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot work our way into salvation. We can't do enough good things to save ourselves. We we can't volunteer enough. We can't pray enough. We can't read our word enough. We can't memorize scripture enough to save ourselves. It's through faith in what Jesus did and that alone that saves us and sets us apart. This is the foundational verse in regards to salvation. And I think most of us get this when we first get saved. We understand that we can't save ourselves. We understand that we're sinners and we need Christ to save us and we need to believe in Christ. We understand that we need the forgiveness of Jesus in our lives. The problem happens after we've been saved for a while. We stop believing that his grace is sufficient for us, and we think we have to work our way and earn our way into a right relationship with God. Pastor Benson does an excellent teaching on the two types of grace. The first one is saving grace, the undeserved favor of God that while we were still sinners... God sent his one and only son to die for us. And by his grace, we're saved. But then there's a second type of grace, and that's sustaining grace. And we need to understand that the undeserving favor, the, 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 the grace of God does not run dry or run out once we get saved. But his grace is sufficient for us at all times. At all times. And we forget this, and we replace grace with empty works. Many Christians think that if they just volunteer more in church or do something nice for someone or or throw in an extra $10 in the offering bucket, somehow they will get closer to God by doing these things. How many of you have done this after you sin, you try to do like two or three good things to, to, to try to get forgiveness for yourself, to try to feel good about your relationship with God? All of those things I just mentioned are good, and we should do them, but we have to understand that those things in and of themselves will not, cannot, do not get us closer to God. God's love does not depend on what we do or don't do for him. God loves us with a perfect love. He loves you and I just as much as he's ever going to love us, and what we do or don't do will not change his perfect love his ferocious love, his chasing love, his pursuing love that he has for us. The Bible says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. You get closer to Jesus not by how much you do, but by spending time with him. By developing intimacy with him, by cultivating an intimate relationship with him, not out of obligation, but out of a desire to get closer to him. You know, how do you think I would feel if if one one day I I, I went to Priscilla and and I asked her to go out on a date with me and and the first thing she does is she looks at her calendar and she says, well, I'm obligated to spend five hours with you this month. I've only spent 2.3 hours with you, so why don't we do dinner and a movie so I can knock out all of the remaining time? I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would feel terrible if she did that to me. Like she was only going out with me to, to, out of obligation, to knock out the remaining time she's obligated to spend with me. I wouldn't feel very loved, would I? 
When we try and earn our way into a right relationship with God, we live like he doesn't exist because Jesus is the only reason we'll ever be right with God. You see, when you're a born-again believer, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He doesn't see all the mistakes you've made. He doesn't see all the faults you've made. He doesn't see all of the mess-ups you've had in your life. He doesn't see all of the temptations you have succumbed to. He doesn't see all of that stuff. When you're a born-again believer, when God looks at you, what he sees is the blood of Jesus that covers you. What he sees is Jesus. And that's the only reason we're right with God. It's nothing that we do. It's not because we're talented. It's not because we're handsome. It's not because we're attractive. It's not because we wear a size zero, which I found out that women's sizes don't make sense at all. Um, <laughs> zero? Really? It's not, it's not because we're attractive enough. It's not because we're gifted. It's Jesus and Jesus alone and we live like he does not exist when we try to earn our way into a right relationship with God. You might be a Christian atheist if you refuse to forgive. You might be a Christian atheist if you refuse to forgive. There was a man that took me under his wing when I first uh, started out in ministry that uh, became a father figure in my life for many years that hurt me very, very deeply, and it took a long time for me to forgive this man. At first, everything was great in our relationship. He taught me a lot about ministry. He taught me a lot about manhood. Uh, he taught me a lot about the ins and outs of, of practical ministry, preaching, uh, the anointing, praying for people, things like that. But I don't know what happened, but he started to change. And he started to get very controlling. And he started asking me to do things that were uncomfortable and things that I felt were contrary to what God was calling me to do with my life. And when I wouldn't comply with some of those things, he started labeling me in very hurtful and demeaning ways. And I I was hurt. And I started developing bitterness and resentment towards this man and then I started noticing all these things that he would do to other people as well like when people left our ministry he would uh, uh, he would assassinate their character and it was always somebody else's fault when they left our ministry and and he would just talk so terrible about them and I was thinking to myself these people are good people why is he treating them this way it took me a long time to forgive this man for the things that He did to me and the things that I saw him doing to others. And the thing is that I thought I had forgiven him early on, but I realized that it wasn't true forgiveness. I was just saying I forgive him, but in my heart of hearts, I knew I hadn't truly, truly forgiven him and released what had happened to me from my life. And I bet many of you are sitting in this room today and you are in the same situation. You might think you have forgiven that person, but if you truly examine and look inside of your heart, you understand and know you have not truly forgiven that person that has hurt you. Here's how you can tell that you still have unforgiveness in your heart. You get angry or jealous when you see that person that hurt you succeed. When you see them put things on Facebook that they got a promotion or something great happened to them inside, you're not happy for them. You're angry that something good happened to them. 
And you can tell that you haven't truly forgiven them if you feel that way. The next thing, you internally wish bad things would happen to them. Not only are you upset when good things happen to them, if you're being honest with yourselves, you wish bad things would happen to them. You internally, you might not ever say it, you might not ever tell anybody else, but internally, you are hoping that something bad happens to them to get them back for what they did to you. The next thing, you want to expose them for selfish reasons. You don't want them exposed so that they can be restored and helped. You want them exposed so that you can justify how you're feeling about them, so that you can say, see, they hurt me, and now they're exposed. They're getting what they deserve. Is that true forgiveness? I was like that. I was like that. I remember there were some people also hurt by this man, and they created, get this, they created a Facebook page that was designated to expose this man. And all they did on this page was talk about all the wrong things that this man was doing. And I, did, I never joined the page, but I'm going to be honest, I frequently got on that page to see what dirt these people were digging up on them. Why? Because I hadn't forgiven this man. I was still holding on to the hurt, and it made me feel good that other people felt the way I was feeling. And lastly, you continue talking bad about this person to others. You know, when, when you don't truly forgive, that unforgiveness, that bitterness, that resentment, it will consume you. And you will not be able to go through your week without talking about that person that hurt you, especially if you get around other people that have felt the same way. You cannot help but talking about that person. You start tearing that person down and after you're done with that conversation, you feel terrible about yourself. And then the next time you're around those people, you start talking about them again. This, these are indicators that you haven't truly forgiven and released that person from your life. When you release that person from your life, when you truly forgive someone, you don't have to talk about them to make yourself feel better. You don't have to get around people that feel the same way so that you can feel better about your hurt and your pain. Amen? Am I speaking to someone this morning? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 from the Message Bible says this. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. God has forgiven all of our sins. How many arrest warrants do we have out on people that have hurt us or done us wrong? We want them to be put away behind the bars of the hurt and pain they've put us through. We want them to suffer the way we're suffering. We want them to experience the heartache that we're experiencing. When we don't forgive people, the only person that's going to get hurt is you. That's the only person, the, the only person that's going to be affected and hurt when you don't forgive someone is you. Because you won't be able to get past it. And resentment and bitterness, like I said, will absolutely consume your life and you will not be able to have true peace or true joy. And I understand some of you in this place have been hurt very deeply. Some of you have been taken advantage of. Some of you, things that have happened to you are horrific and awful. But 
The truth is, is that the only way you're going to experience freedom and peace and joy in your life is if you let go and forgive. And you don't have to be best friends with that person. You don't have to be friends with that person. You don't have to ever talk to that person again. But what you do have to do is have freedom in your heart from what that person did to you. Amen? And here's the bigger picture. If Christ has forgiven us of all of our past, present, and future sins, how can we sit there and not forgive others? When we have received Christ's forgiveness for all of our sins, all of the things that we have done, how can we sit there and not forgive others that have hurt us and done us wrong? When we refuse to forgive, we live like God doesn't exist because we don't think our God is big enough to heal our hearts. Did you hear me this morning? When we refuse to forgive, we live like God doesn't exist because we don't think our God is big enough to heal our hearts. Didn't we sing this morning about overcoming? Didn't we sing about victory? Yet in our own personal lives, we don't think our God is big enough to heal our hearts from the hurt and the pain that someone else caused. Are you kidding me? Our God is big enough to heal us. Our God is big enough to restore us. Our God is big enough to give us victory over what that person did to us. There's no obstacle too big for us to overcome when we trust and put our faith in Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You might be a Christian atheist if you don't trust God with your money. If you don't trust God with your money, Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think Jesus did that because we're all prone to serve money. And so Jesus was addressing that. We're all prone, especially in America, we're all prone to serve materialistic things. I I faced this firsthand yesterday. I was at my in-laws, and I was taking Boston swimming, and uh, I, had, uh, I put my phone in my swim trunks, and uh, I, I, I'm taking Boston swimming, and I'm in the pool having a great time with my son, bonding with my son, spending time with my son. My, my, my son's having a great time. You know, he's getting out of the pool, jumping in the pool, and I'm catching him, and this and that. And then I, uh, for whatever reason, I, I feel on my shorts, and I realize that my, my iPhone 5 is in my shorts, and I am in the pool. <sighs> I literally feel like I lost a limb or something. I, I depend so much on my phone, my email, my Facebook, my bank statements, all that stuff, my... My ESPN, my words with friends, all that stuff is on my phone and I feel like I've lost a limb. We're all prone to be attached to material possessions, aren't we? And it's difficult to tithe and give offerings when we have car payments, house payments, braces for the kids, college tuition, vacation money, credit card payments, and everything else that demands our money. You've heard this before, but... You can see a lot about your heart based on your bank statement. And based on my bank statement, my heart must be in the restaurant business because me and my family spend entirely too much money on eating out. I mean, when my finances get low and all that stuff and I look at my bank statement, you can always trace it back to Cracker Barrel, Texas Roadhouse, Taco Cabana, Raising Cane's. And I'm just like, man, love... 
you need to start cooking again because we're spending too much money. All our money's going out to uh, food establishments and we don't have any money. Do we trust God in the area of our finances or is that off limits to God? Do we say, God, you can have this part of my life and that part of my life, but my finances, they're off limits. Are we being generous with what God has entrusted us to manage or are we being stingy? Are we giving God our best or are we just giving God our leftovers? Are we spending money on whatever that that we want and that we desire and then if there's something left over, we throw it in the offering bucket? Is that what we're doing? If you and I don't trust God enough that we're willing to tithe 10% and give above that 10% to missions or furnishing the grace place or another good cause, then how can we sit here and say that we're living like God exists in our lives? If we can't trust God with something like money, how can we say that we're living our lives as if God exists? Hmm. If God is living and active in our lives, then we should trust that he can do more with the 90% or the 85% or whatever's left over after you're given. We need to trust that God can do more with that than, if, than what we can do with that full 100%. Mm, that's, I mean, that, that convicted me as I was preparing this part of the message. You know, when pastor asked us, I don't even remember how long ago it was to make faith promises to furnishing the grace place, um, I felt in my heart that Priscilla and I were supposed to uh, uh, take the money that we had, our weekly allowance that we use to eat out, and we were supposed to use that to put into the grace place. And so we made a pretty significant pledge for us. It might not be for someone else, but for us. And the truth is, is that, you know, since we did that, we've been blessed. And on most weeks, you know, we have enough money left over to eat out. Sometimes too much, you know, but uh, we all, God provides when we trust him and when we sacrifice for him, he will provide for us. Maybe not the way we want it, maybe not the way we planned it, but God will always provide for us. And trust me, I'm far from perfect in handling my finances, but I do know this, God takes care of his children. God takes care of his children. That is something that you can count on, that God will take care of his children. He might not give you that, that uh, Rolls Royce that you want. He might not give you that uh, 3,500 square foot house. He might not give you that boat. He might, but he might not. But he will provide for your needs. If he says who he says he is, then he will pro- provide for me if I put my faith and trust in him. And lastly, this morning, you might be a Christian atheist if you don't believe God for the supernatural. Here's something we don't talk about in church as much as we should. You might be a Christian atheist if you don't believe God for the supernatural. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, everybody say believes, in me, the works that I do he will do also, and greater works. Everybody say greater works. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, we either believe this scripture or we don't believe this scripture. I've heard preachers that will, uh, that will kind of water down this, 
this, this scripture and they will say, well, Jesus was just talking about the amount of people that we're ministering to. Well, that's not what I see when I read this. I see that we will do even greater works than Jesus did, all of the works that Jesus did. If we believe in Jesus, then we will do greater things than he did. Wow, when you think about that, when you think about that, that is incredible. That is amazing. And let me say this. It's very hard to believe God for supernatural things to happen in our lives because the supernatural is only needed when we run out of the natural. And in America, we have a lot of natural. So it's very difficult for us to believe for supernatural things because we have everything. We don't need a lot. And so we don't, we don't seek God for those things because we, we have other uh, means to get by. You know, prayer has become a last resort for many of us. I mean, isn't that true? When I'm sick, you know, the, the first thing I do many times is go to the medicine cabinet and check to see if I have NyQuil. You know, and I don't pray until I've chugged my two tablespoons of NyQuil and I'm ready to pass out from it. Then I'll say a prayer right before I fall asleep. We, <laughs> we don't even think about praying. We don't even think about praying anymore. It's a last resort. And there's nothing wrong with doctors or medicine. But the point is, do we snuff out the supernatural in our lives because we're so dependent on what we have access to? Do we snuff out the supernatural work of God in our lives because we're so dependent on the things that we have access to? Jesus said that we will do even greater works than he did. What works did Jesus do? When I read the Gospels, when I study the life of Jesus, I see that Jesus' life and ministry consisted of one miracle after another. He lived a supernatural life. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus took a boy's sack lunch of five loaves of bread and two fish and he fed close to 15,000 people including men, women, and children. I don't know about you, but that is supernatural. I wouldn't have to eat out as much if I did that. (laughs) Then there's another time when the disciples were out on a boat stranded in the middle of a, of a sea and there was a huge storm and they thought they were dying. They thought this was their last boat ride and they were about to, uh, they were about to go overboard and they were about to di- die in the middle of the sea and all of a sudden they see this ghostly figure walking in, uh, in the water and what was a bad situation turned into a worse situation. They're thinking, I am in the middle of the sea in the midst of a storm and what could be worse than a ghost coming? And as this ghostly figure got closer and closer, they realized that it was Jesus walking on water. And, when, and, and even, even uh, Peter got in the action and he walked on water. And when Jesus got to the boat, he supernaturally calmed the storm. That is amazing. How about when Jesus was in Jericho and, the bl- and a blind man named Bartimaeus started crying out to him and he said, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And he started shouting this over and over and over. And the people in the crowd started getting irritated at this man and told him to shut up. You're being a distraction. Quiet down. This is Jesus. And Jesus said, bring this man over to me. And he asked the man, what can I do for you? And the man, of course, said, I I want sight. And Jesus supernaturally 
healed this blind man out on the streets. Worship team, could you please uh, come forward and, and uh, help me out here? Let me ask you a question. Do our lives look like Jesus' life? If I'm being honest with you this morning, mine does not. You know, I used to pray for everyone and their mama when they were sick. I would look for opportunity. Even if you weren't sick and you looked sick, I would pray for you. I would look for opportunities for God to use me in a supernatural way. If people had financial problems, if people wanted a family member that was unsaved to be saved, if someone, I don't know, whatever it was, I would pray for people. And I've lost a passion, and I've lost the zeal that I used to have for praying for people. Sometimes I look the other way when people need prayer. Sometimes I don't even think about it when people are sitting there telling me what they're going through. I try to counsel them out of their situation. Instead of just right then and there, we just seek the Lord. And we ask for His power to be released in their lives. The Gospels say repeatedly that sick people, demon-possessed people, hurting people would come to Jesus because they knew something was going to happen. They might know, not know what was going to happen, but they knew if they went into the presence of Jesus, something was going to change. Something was going to break. Something was going to be different when they encountered Jesus. Do people even know they can come to us when they need a miracle? In our workplace, at school, in our neighborhood, at church. If people are in need of a miracle, do people even know by the way we live our lives, by the way we talk, do they even know that they can come to us for prayer? If they need something supernatural, if they need a miracle, do they know that they can come to us? Why don't we believe that our coworkers can be saved? Why don't we believe that our educational institutions can be transformed? Why don't we believe that dead people can be raised to life? Why don't we believe that sick people can be healed? Why don't we believe that cancer can be removed? Why don't we believe that people can be healed of AIDS? Why don't we believe that America can once again honor biblical values? If you're like me, you've probably said, well, the Bible says in the last days, it's going to get worse. The Bible also says we don't know the day, the hour, the time that Jesus is coming back. How do we not know that God wants a supernatural revival to happen in America before he comes back? How do we know that the things that are happening, the laws that are being passed are just the way it's supposed to be? How do we know that something supernatural isn't supposed to happen in our nation? We try to put our finite understanding on God's infinite understanding, and that's when we get into trouble. A couple months ago, one of my youth sponsors, Prissy Palacios, she, uh, she has partial deafness in her right ear, and what started to happen is she started to get the same symptoms happening in her left ear and and she told us about it and so one Wednesday night when all of my sponsors uh, we were getting together to pray like we do every Wednesday night before our service 
I felt led to lay hands on her and, and pray for her. So we, we did that. We prayed for her. And she said that after we prayed for her, she felt a pop in her left ear. And she, she felt some things, I don't know, something happening in her ear. And then three, a couple days later, she said everything cleared up in her left ear and she was completely healed. And she said, hallelujah, praise God, that's a miracle. And she said that she went to the uh, ear doctor and she got some more tests run and, and, and the doctor told her that even in her right ear, they saw improvement, which before they said that was going to be impossible and it was just going to get worse. And so we're believing God for complete healing in that right ear as well. I guess we didn't have enough faith for that right ear, but I believe that she is going to completely get healed in that right ear as well. And she's going to have complete healing. And the truth is, church, God doesn't just want that to be an isolated incident. God wants miracles, signs, and wonders, the supernatural, to be consistent in our lives. You know, if you have an unbelieving friend at work, and, and, and they have a sickness, and you pray for them, and they get healed, how can they deny the work of God in their lives? I mean, they can debate with you all day long about doctrine, and, and if God is real, and And if God is real, why does he let all these bad things happen? But if they get healed, if you pray for a situation in their lives and God does something supernatural, they cannot deny what happened in their lives. In fact, let's do this right now. Every miracle in the Bible took risk. Every miracle in the Bible, there was awkward moments. You know what? I enjoy putting people in awkward moments. I don't like awkward moments, but I like putting people in awkward moments. If you need something supernatural to happen in your life, if you need a miracle to happen in your life this morning, I just want you to stand. Is there anybody, you need a miracle, you need healing, you need a financial miracle, you need a salvation of a loved one, they're they're heading, they're destroying their lives, And, and you need something supernatural to intervene, you need something supernatural to intervene in your marriage. Maybe you have an addiction to something and you need to overcome and you've tried 12-step programs. You've tried to be counseled, but you know what? You need something supernatural to happen in your life. I want you to stand. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, right there where you're standing, just start believing for something supernatural to happen. Just start believing for something miraculous to happen. If you are not standing, I'm assuming everything's good in your life. You start praying for those that are standing. Father, 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 we call upon your name. And Lord, by the authority that is found in the name and the power of Jesus, we call upon your miraculous power to intervene in our lives. Everybody standing, they need something supernatural to happen in their lives. And Father, we pray for breakthrough this morning. We pray for victory this morning. Uh, Lord, if it's a healing in their body, we pray healing in their bodies. If it's salvation of a loved one, Lord, we pray that you would supernaturally intervene. And Lord, I pray that you would work in the lives of that person. Lord, if it's a financial miracle, we pray, Lord, that you would provide supernaturally. Father, if it's breakthrough over an addiction, Lord, we pray right now in the name of Jesus, you would set that person free in Jesus' name by the power of God. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If there's somebody in here that has unforgiveness in their heart and they've tried and tried and tried and tried to forgive that person, Lord, I pray that you would supernaturally help them to experience forgiveness and freedom this morning. Hallelujah. Jesus. Hallelujah. Everybody stand and let's worship the Lord.